A couple of years ago, uh, Apple released a very wildly popular commercial for its latest generation of iPad. It opens with these very cinematic and dramatic scenes of uh, nature with people filming it with their iPads. Well, Apple apparently um, obtained the rights to some voiceover that Robin Williams had done uh, in his famous portrayal of a boys' school teacher in the movie Dead Poets Society. And the lines from that movie that he quotes throughout the commercial go like this. He says, to quote from Whitman, O me, O life of the questions of those recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, O me, O life? Now stop for a moment there. Do you see what Whitman is asking in that kind of flowery prose? He's wondering what good is his life among the great questions of life. Where is my place in this world? Well, the movie finishes with Williams uh, 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 quoting again, squatting down among the boys in the aisles. They're all gathered around him. And he says this, it gives Whitman's answer to it. The answer that you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on and on and you may contribute a verse, that the powerful play goes on and on and you may contribute a verse. To which Williams adds, looking into the eyes of the young boys, what will your verse be? You know, it was amazing how the power that movie had over the moviegoers when they watched it, because there was something so nostalgic and, and tragic about the complicated lives of these young people trying to find their place in the world. But it occurred to me that as I thought through those questions that he was asking, that, that those feel so much more appropriate to the young, don't they? Like for the old, like me, the questions, you know, what, what do we entertain those questions with? Regret? Sure. Fulfillment? Maybe. Uh, melancholy over how mundane life feels over compared to the dreams that you had when you were younger? Probably a lot of us. Here's the deal. However you understand that question about understanding your place in this world, you have to admit that there is a persistence to this impression among people that regardless of what I set out to do, it seems like the world around me has just gone wrong, either around me or even to me. I was listening years ago to a very widely traveled preacher who said, wherever I go, I can count on the fact of one thing being true about the people in the audience. They will look and say, the world is not what it should be. When was the last time you looked and shook your head and was just like, this is not right? Could have even been this morning. But we've been looking this spring at this means by which God is going to reunite all things, even heaven and earth, around what Jesus did on the cross. And we found that the means by which he's going to do that, cosmic healing, is through this organization or organism, if you will, called the church. But we're going to leave very briefly in chapter 2 that big cosmic universal view of God's plan. And we're going to zoom in, as it were, on us on you and your place in this massive plan to fix the world. And in the same way that Paul sort of gave us the last four weeks of study of the world around us in God's plan, now in chapter 2 he's going to locate us in that larger picture. And my premise this morning is that Paul's insight into man's character and role in God's big salvation plan is actually the only one that makes sense of all the world religions, of all of man's disparate experiences. In other words, how do you make sense of the idealism of youth and the cynicism of old age? 
where do Christians land on the problems that are associated with human nature? Why are we the way we are? In other words, we'll be entertaining this question, what is wrong with the world? What's wrong with me? And so God gives us this incredible help to sort of see through this by focusing on two great facts. And they're the two parameters that I want to use this morning to define how a Christian sees their place in this world and hopefully maybe give us some inspiration about the verse that we'll be called to write. Two points. Number one, Paul says that man is dead, but then secondly, he says that God is gracious. Let's look at that first one first. Man is dead. Not very flattering, but the Bible says that the best description of you outside of the grace of God is dead. And again, that's a controversial word. You know, theologians have tried to toy around with this and say to themselves, well, exactly what is a corpse able to do? What's his ability? I think that actually misses the point. Paul's not talking about spiritual inactivity or even capacity for action at all. What I think Paul is talking about is a walking death. So I've been putting my big toe into some reality TV lately. Bear with me. And I've been struck afresh by this sort of universally this pervasive, unquestioned idea that what it means for me to be who I am is to express my preferences at any given moment. You have characters who will make these speeches in reality TV with this line, well, I'm just stating my truth. And what's amazing is how the listeners, like, totally respect that and bow down to it and sort of respect what people say. I had my truth. I said it. (laughs) Ta-da! And suddenly that's compelling for people. The reason why I mentioned this is because it's, always, it's not always that easy to explain to a culture who feels that way what we mean when we talk about Christianity. Because for so many people, their Christianity comes from a different idea. For some people, Christianity is just kind of a, I don't know, a cultural habit of life. For other people, it's a, it's a sophisticated argument about the existence of God. For still others, it's an expression of their allegiance to a certain political party. But what I want to submit to you this morning is that for Paul, Christianity is a matter of your essence. A place that goes down into the internal regions that define who you are. And there, at least in Paul's view, you either are or are not a Christian. And Paul believes that when a person becomes a Christian, there is something that gets hold of them in the center of their character where they begin to look at things that prior to were just kind of theoretical, uh, uh, um, vague, religious-sounding ideas, and they turn solid. They have weight to them. In other words, they take on a life that is outside of your personal preferences, And you start listening for truth in places other than just your wildly subjective heart. And so over and over again, people that have undergone this transformation of becoming a Christian, this new birth, they will report that the level of existence that they have experienced prior to this conversion was a living death compared to what it is now having found Christ. Let me illustrate this the way I heard a pastor do one time. You know, in, in the biological world, you have kind of Uh, gradients of life, don't you? Uh, You start out with plant life, you go up a little higher to animal life, and then you've got human life. And and it's entirely appropriate to refer to any of those levels as life. But if you're a human being who's living on the level of an animal or a frog, let's say, (laughs) 
That's a, that's a, that's a living death. That is a death of life. Why do we say when someone's not functioning at all that they have become a vegetable? It's, it's alive in a sense, but it's, but it's subhuman. It's sub-living. So don't, get, don't miss what Paul's saying. He's saying there is a level of life that Christians experienced after they're coming to Christ that is as much above natural human life as it is above animal life. That's the difference. Therefore, from God's point of view, we were all created to be alive, but we are dead, subhuman, even considered a walking dead. TV reference intended. Now, here's the question. Why would Paul say this? I don't feel flattered and good about myself right now. Well, bear with me because we got to walk through this, especially in verses 1 through 3 in the way in which Paul says this. Why does he say this? Well, first of all, in verse 1, he says, because you breed decay. Look what he says. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. What is death? Death is decay. It's rot. You know, when a corpse dies and it decays, it turns really ugly to us. It's the stuff of horror films, right? Death is disintegration where something ceases to be unified and it breaks down. You put a piece of dirt on a piece of cloth and eventually if it's not clean, it'll put a hole in the cloth. Reminds me of my jeans when I was in elementary school that my mother always had to patch with those little iron-on denim patches. No one in the first service remembered that, and I want to know who remembers these things in this service. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) Testify, people. But here's the point. It's important because decay and disintegration, it repels us, doesn't it? You know, we look at the world through the lens of the things that are broken down, and we see public trust breaks down, family unity breaks down, mental sanity breaks down. And how do we respond? It sends us into ourselves to hide from one another. Why? Because it's gross out there. So Paul says we're dead because there's decay all around us. Secondly, though, he says we're dead because we are being manipulated. Look at verse 2. Kind of freaky. Paul says that you were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. (laughs) What? (laughs) What in the world is he talking about? Well, what he says is, is if you're following the course of the world, it means that you are an unwitting participant in the decay of life that's all around you. Why? Because there are powers out there, spiritual in nature, that are behind the wickedness that we see. Now look, remember for just a second, Paul is a very good Jewish person, which means that he sees the world through a Jewish worldview, which is to say there are two realms There's a seen realm, which we inhabit, but there's an unseen realm, which is inhabited by angels, by God, and also, as it turns out, by malevolent spiritual beings who themselves are exerting influence. They're deceiving. They're manipulating. They're cajoling unsuspecting creatures created in God's image so that they will destroy the creation rather than enhance and develop it. Now look, for just a moment, please purge from your mind the cartoonish horror film version of that that you have in your mind of demons and demons and uh, devils. We don't have a lot of glowing eyes and sinister faces in the Bible. The Bible never portrays them in that way. Rather, what you find, the Bible speaking about the devil's work, it shows up in the places where you wouldn't expect. It shows when we see political oppression. It shows up when you see bureaucratic tyranny that harms the poor. 
It shows up in materialism and hunger, in racial discrimination, in injustice of any kind. Behind it all, Paul says, is a worldview that says, yes, these individuals are responsible for how they've acted on their own, but there's someone else behind it as well, an invisible world that's influencing it all. The horror films, they're just trying to fake you out. Don't listen to them. Now the question comes like, okay, okay, okay. If that's all invisible, like why would I need even to know that? Well, because of what you get in the third point. Paul says that, that there's deadness because of decay and manipulation, but thirdly, that means that you are enslaved. Look what Paul says. We once all lived in the passions of our flesh. Underline that word passions there because that word is a Greek word called epithumia that we're going to return to in the future. Usually you have that word translated lust, which we always think of sex in that point, but it's actually far more than that. We use the word lust to describe a desire that has become so powerful that it has more control over us than we have over it. You know what I'm talking about? there, There is a deadness that manifests itself in a form of slavery where you start down the road of an evil desire And before too long, you realize that evil desire has me a whole lot more than I have it. That's what Paul is talking about. So being dead means we've lost any real freedom to be human. So there's decay, there's manipulation and slavery. Then finally, he says, we stand condemned. Look at verse 3. I think it's chilling. He says, we are by nature children of wrath. What in the world does it mean to be wrath's child? I think it means that we belong to judgment outside of Christ. We belong to judgment. There's a great old uh, myth about um, a kiss-up in the court of King Dionysus II by the name of Damocles, who on one particular occasion is looking at the king and being like, wow, must be nice to be the king. So Damocles is like, well, if you want to, I'll let you be king for a little while. Damocles is like, wonderful, I would love to. So he goes up and sits on the throne. But as soon as he takes a seat on the throne, he looks up. And hanging above him is a huge sword. And the old myth says it was hanging by a horse's hair. What's the point? You come and you take over and you move into a realm of of leadership and you suddenly realize danger haunts you at every turn. And that sense of danger, Paul is saying, is on everyone who is outside of Christ. There's a sense of the sword of Damocles hanging over of someone that is out there uh, that, that that makes me to believe that I'm guilty. And a Christian looks at that inward sense and says, okay, there he is that exists because of a personal, uh, actual affront that has been committed against the origin of life itself. I walk around feeling condemned because I am, in fact, condemned outside of Christ. How else do you explain this instinct for all of us to believe that though things might be going okay now, there's danger just around the corner? We are officially the most paranoid generation in human history. We're medicated to suggest it, therapeutic as much. Everyone knows not only are things not right out there, but they're not right in here either. Paul sums it all up by saying very simply, you were dead. Which brings me to the second point. Not very flattering, of course, that first point. But the second point is that God is gracious, (laughs) that God is gracious. Now, look, you need to realize that a little brief discussion we just had on the idea of sin puts us sort of in, um, oh, I don't know, in the minority among churches today. 
But I really want to pitch at you that you're never going to get this second point until you drink deeply of the first. And I know that's counterintuitive. But I do think that one of the reasons why we struggle for those to feel like there's an assurance of my salvation before God, which I believe we've learned in the first part of Ephesians, God wants us to live in. He wants us to live in that place of assured security before him. But I don't think that's possible if you soft pedal the idea of sin. And here's the reason why. Because if we just use the word sin in the way we mostly use it, I mean, sin for us a lot of times is just like, you know, a, a slight malformation. Uh, you know, uh, maybe it's sort of um, a little fallible, just like everybody else. You know, maybe there were some things I needed to fix in my life, a couple little guilt feelings here and there, uh, a bad attitude, maybe some broken family relationships. So you know what? I, I think we're going to go back and go to church. That'd be good for us to fix those things. Well, I wonder if you realize that this very much may be one of the reasons why the phrase Christian joy like strikes on you so, so, so lightly or has little meaning for you. Why? Because the level of joy that you experience at finding forgiveness in Christ will always be directly proportional to the amount of sin that you thought was there for God to forgive. You recognize this? I've used this illustration for before, but imagine for a moment that I go and tell you that I just paid one of your bills, but I don't tell you which one. I might have paid the $5 that you owed to a friend of yours back. I also might have paid off the rest of your house mortgage. Do you recognize how the level of joy that you experience upon hearing that your bill was paid is contingent on the size of the debt? That's the point. So if my apprehension of my situation prior to coming to Christ is kind of superficial, my guess is the transformation that we hope to gain in Christ is going to be just as superficial. Will it not? But then we come to two very powerful words there in verse 4, but God. We spent last weekend with a place called But God Ministries over in the Delta. And they got it from this very verse. Because what Paul says is that there's a way out. But it totally rests in God. And you'll see it by these three verbs that he mentions as he describes us. Here they are. He says, he made us alive, first of all. He raised us up, second of all. And then he made us sit with him. Now look, those ought to sound a little bit familiar to you because they refer to the three successive events in Jesus' earthly ministry that happened after the cross. You realize that? We call it the resurrection the ascension to God's right hand that happened in uh, Acts chapter 1, and then what we call the session, which is the fact that he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. By the way, when we're saying the Apostles' Creed every time, this is why we say third, the third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's where that came from. But this is what's crazy. <laughs> Paul is not talking about Jesus. He's talking about you. He's talking about us. We are raised. We are ascended. We are seated. Okay, here we hit. We're hitting it again. I know we talked about this a couple weeks ago, and I promise you'd be returned to it, and here we are. Because it is a central tenet of Christianity, and it takes multiple exposures for it to sink in, which is why I'm returning to it. Because all throughout this passage, you've got these phrases that you are in Him, that you are in Christ. Theologians refer to this doctrine as union with Christ. And what I want to pitch to you this morning is this. It's the best way to understand what it means to be a Christian is to understand union with Christ. 
Union with Christ means that Jesus and his people are so closely connected, so intimate, so joined together that what may be said to be true about Jesus is also true about his people. If he is raised, we are raised. If he is ascended, we have ascended. If he is seated and ruling, we are seated and ruling. And look, it's okay to admit, lest this is one of those places where every time I see it, I have no idea what Paul is talking about. And I'm granting the fact that it's mysterious. But what I want to say to you this morning is, is, Paul is saying that your identity right now is not based upon any of the things that you're trying to connect to. It's not your job. It's not your family name. It's not your looks or your career choices, the ROI on your portfolio, whatever. Rather, it's based upon what God sees in Jesus. What Paul is saying is there is no difference between what God feels when he looks at his son Jesus and what he feels and registers when he looks at you. That's union with Christ. And when all of a sudden that becomes part of who you are, your personal story becomes enfolded in another story. Or, or I should say, in another's story. This is, what, this is what faith is. Faith means finding my identity in Christ. All right, let me see if I can illustrate this. 1999 was the year that I moved to Oxford, Mississippi from Memphis. And I'm a graduate of the University of Memphis. Actually, I'm a graduate of Memphis State University. As Ole Miss fans refer to it, Tiger High. Memphis Mistake University. Laugh all you like, right? But the bulk of my memories as a child was going with my father to Tiger basketball games, especially in the late 70s and the early 80s when we actually had a decent team. Uh, Went to the Final Four back in the 80s. I was even campus minister there at the University of Memphis for five years prior to coming here. I was a fan. I love my alma mater. But here's what's crazy about my allegiance to Tiger basketball. My moods shifted with the winning and the losing of the team. Isn't that weird? Yeah, I mean, I'm not the one who you know, didn't practice my free throws. I'm not the one who missed that last little buzzer beating shot. And yet, if they won, I was elated. And if they lost, I was depressed. My story, as it were, was wrapped up in Memphis athletics. But then I moved down here 20 years ago, and slowly my story began to be hijacked. I began to live among the red and the blue. I attended some games. I I meet and become lifelong friends with students in that ministry. I picnicked in the grove with my family. (laughs) We would ride through campus on days when the students were there on our bikes, right? And eventually, I started rooting for Ole Miss. Now, mind you, I was warned over and over again, Les, do not sell your soul to Ole Miss athletics. (laughs) But I did because I found my allegiances changing. I started dressing my children in Ole Miss cheerleader outfits and and, and football jerseys. And here's the question. How did that happen? It happened because at some point in the last few years, I pledged my allegiance to a new team. My story became their story. When When they win, I'm up. When they lose, I'm down. In that sense, I am in Ole Miss. I've been adopted into your family. I've come to live by the rules of your kingdom. I've come to value and worship all the things that the rebels do. Now look, it's not my purpose to question whether that was a good decision or not. (laughs) Believe me, my loyalties are tested every year. But I simply want to ask you this question. 
How do you account for this almost universal tendency for human beings to set up allegiances to worship those things with their time and with their money and rise and fall emotionally with their success or failure? How do you account for that? I can tell you why. Because somewhere along the way, you found it wonderful. It appealed to you. It won your affections. It became a blessing to you. And so the question I want you to ask is, what blessing does Paul have for me that might draw my allegiances away from myself to him? You ready? It's in verse 10. It's the best thing you've heard all week. For we are his workmanship. That word workmanship is the Greek word poema, from which we get the word poem. Paul says you are God's creative attempt at creating a masterpiece. That's what he's made in you. Don't you see the affection that he has poured out and won on your behalf in Christ, in his son? Hey, come on. When was the last time you stood in front of a piece of art and were just wowed? Have you ever wept at the beauty and and the mastery of of a well-crafted movie? Do you remember the awe that you felt the first time you listened to to, to Miles Davis kind of blue or, or dark side of the moon from start to finish? Or when was the last time you stood and saw even a replica of Michelangelo's David and just stared in sheer awe? Because if you can get a sense of what that feeling was like, that's how God looks at you if you're in Christ, in union with him. And again, You're not listening if you're not saying, how in the world could that ever be true? And the answer is, because there is a brand new way of seeing yourself that God has established, and it's called union with Christ. It's the entire thing. It's a whole new way of talking about who you are. So here's my last question I'm going to ask you, and I'm just going to ask it point blank. Are you a Christian this morning? Are you a Christian and I'm not asking if, if you read your Bible on a regular basis or if you, be, you belonged in church since you were born or if you walked an aisle when you were a child and signed some card at some crusade or something or maybe that you had an intense emotional experience when you were in college or, or, or maybe even uh, whether or not you and your wife just thought, you know, we ought to raise the kids in church. Let's get back to it. I'm not asking any of those questions. I'm asking this question. What criteria of judgment do you use to refer to you. <laughs> what is that to you? Because I think Paul is offering something here that is radically wonderful. And my question is, can you see it? Summed up in two sentences. Man is dead, but God is gracious. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you then lead us into that? Because the truth is, the allegiances to these other These other uh, gods, they call us away. They distract us. And we're asking for you to be gracious by breaking through that. Father, that you would break through it in this supper even. That as we come to, to partake of your body and your blood, we might experience this union with Christ in a vivid way. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.